Welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. This week, my guest is Will Leach, a contributing editor at New York Magazine. Will is national correspondent for MLB.com. He's host of The Will Leach Show on Sports Illustrated TV, and Will is the founding editor of Deadspin. Last week, you may know, he guest edited our newsletter at the Sunday Long Read, something he's very familiar with doing. He's got a weekly newsletter of his own, which I highly recommend you subscribe to. He's written there about Prom, Wilco, Woody Allen, and whatever else he cares about, because that's what Will does. He is able in his day job to write about what he cares about, which is a pretty cool gig, actually. Welcome to the podcast, Will. Uh, of course. Uh, th- thanks for having me. And thanks for letting me uh, uh, edit the Sunday Long Read. For anyway, I recommend if anyone out there listening ever gets the opportunity to do it, uh, you definitely should, because not only do you get to read all this great stuff, you get emails from Don all week. It's wonderful. <laughs> I, felt like I, I felt like I was getting like these. It was so great. I was like, because I mean, I mean you, you and I have corresponded before. I'm, a, I'm obviously a huge, huge fan of yours, but we've corresponded before. But rarely do I just get like, I'm like, wow, he's thinking of me. This is so great. He emailed me again. It was very, very very exciting. So I had a great time. Thanks for letting me do it. Well, thank you. You did a fantastic job, Will. Uh, Our readers were bombarding me with compliments uh, all Sunday, and I'm continuing to get them this week. Uh, And I felt guilty because I was bombarding you with uh, all these emails. And I should explain, we get tips constantly from contributing editors, from readers. So I was forwarding all those to you, stuff that I saw I was forwarding to you. I just want to make the job easy or at least easier and it's a big ask right i mean you it's a lot of work it we is. put you through the paces didn't we yeah i mean to me the 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 it's just I, the fun part for me what really blew me away about it, it is a lot of work but it never feels like all great work it doesn't feel like work at all i mean oh no it was very difficult to read all of these wonderful <laughs> right. pieces that all of these people wrote all week oh no how will i ever survive that uh so yeah for me that was kind of the wonder obviously i've been a subscriber for a long time i read it every week but you never quite until you actually do it and try to select the best pieces you never really quite get just how much great stuff that there is out there. And, and I tried to kind of touch on that in my intro, that it just blows me away that I know the, the business has its uh, is worrisome for people and there are certainly has its ups and downs. But as a consumer of this stuff and as a reader of great work, it's just, it's mind blowing and staggering just how much stuff, uh, great stuff there is to read. I felt bad. There were 15 other pieces that could have gotten in there because there we was so have much that. Stuff. And we have that problem um, every week because there is so much stuff that doesn't make the list that could and should make the list. We just don't have the space. So we try to keep it to 20 pieces or less. And even that is a lot of stuff to share with folks. I'm glad you mentioned your introduction, Will, because I loved your opening introduction in the newsletter. And I actually wanted to start there. I love how you begin saying, and I want to read this to our listeners. You write, it can feel, it does feel as if every day brings with it a new fresh hell. I have come to actively saying aloud, all right, let's find out what terrible things are happening this very second when I pick up my phone. Uh, And you talk about interesting times, and certainly we're living in interesting times, and you want everything to settle down. I've heard this so many times, Will, recently from friends saying, everything is awful. Life is hell. (laughs) Can it get any worse? No, it can't get worse. And then it does get worse. I just had a drink with a friend a couple of nights ago. Uh, She runs a nonprofit uh, on women's health in Brooklyn. She was saying, 
everything is so horrible, but business could not be better in what I do. Um, and, and then you go on from there and say, but in one way, and perhaps only this one way, we are living in a truly golden age. And you talk about the golden age, of course, of journalism and people creating so much compelling, important, compulsively readable work. Uh, and it's just it's downright staggering. And as you write, and I love this sentence, people are out there building the pyramids every damn day. So I wanted to ask you about that. There's so much to cover. There's so much bad stuff happening in the world. And yet people are really stepping up and, uh, and, and doing remarkable work. Yeah, you know, that's the, uh, yeah, I think that's the phrasing, correct phrasing too, is people are stepping up to sort of meet this moment. And I think this was, uh, I think the shock of, uh, uh, I still am personally not over the shock of what happened in November 2016. I probably should not have been as shocked as I was. I think that's one of the lessons that I've learned since November 2016. I probably should not have been as shocked and the world was perhaps not the way that I thought that it was, or at least at least more accurately tried to convince myself that it was. Uh but I remember when it happened, and and it really felt like, like okay, how are we going to like what what happens now? Like I don't like I've got two. As I I wrote a cover story for New York Magazine, uh, uh, not last March, but March of two thousand eighteen, about raising boys, children, but specifically boys uh, in this particular age. And one of the things I talk about is just how like I want, I just I want to both protect them and yet also let them know what the my, my sons are seven and four my youngest son wins about to turn five and they are i want them both let them know what the world is and protect them from it and and it's funny because i didn't know when all of this has happened and you see how things have gotten worse you don't know how people are going to react and you don't know how people get, uh, you don't know how media is going to react because not only is this just an insane time to be alive then you also have media under full frontal assault like mm-hmm. full assault uh from all angles and you know it, i uh i covered uh i was working for bloomberg politics uh covering the 2016 election i actually had never covered politics before i worked with john heilman uh at new york magazine and he was part of bloomberg politics and he asked me if i wanted to help cover the election and i said uh, sure because with the idea like i've been covering sports and entertainment all these times it will be good for me it will be make me feel good about america in the process of electoral <laughs> politics and i will cover for the election and uh i remember when it was over it's like wow you know what i would like to have every baseball game beamed into my brain this exact second <laughs> but even when it comes to that idea like when i remember when trump first announced in 2015 and uh and he started the polls were doing pretty well and he did an event in mobile alabama at land people stadium home of the senior bowl and he did an event there and my editors uh, my editor john homans uh called me and he said will um, there's Trump is having an event down there. I want you to cover it, and because I live in Athens, Georgia, he's like, you can get there, right? And I was like, well, I mean, I know to in from New York's perspective, the South is all just like a couple New Jersey subway exit, <laughs> New Jersey freeway exits <laughs> away from each other. It is six and a half hours away, but nevertheless, I was not turning that down. And so I, I and I, you know, I, lots of people covered. Uh, they, uh, I talked to my friend Soap and Deb, who covered uh, the uh, so much of the Trump campaign. I only went to that one event. I. I, went, I, I covered the uh, Trump rally before you were assaulted as a member of the media for being a Trump rally. It was just funny. Everyone was just having it was it was it was it was a silly thing. They, they loved talking to me at that uh, at that thing. So to see how that's devolved and to see how things have gotten worse and worse and worse and worse, uh, to see the response that that uh, we've had to it, uh, not not only under the uh, emotional assault and the threat of physical assault and sometimes actual physical assault, but also the financial assault that the 
whole kind of industry has been on yep. uh, under to see uh, the response to it. It's it's pretty difficult not to be inspired. So I'm based in Miami. As you said earlier, you're based in Athens, Georgia. There's this stereotype being that a lot of writers and editors uh, either live in New York or L.A. or Washington, D.C. or somewhere on one of the two coasts. How did you slip away from New York City to Athens, Georgia? Yeah, I lived in New York for uh, 13 years. Um, I moved out there. I worked at the Sporting News in St. Louis. Uh, back when it was in St. Louis, it's in Charlotte now. But I worked at the Sporting News in St. Louis in 98, 99, and then moved to New York to uh, uh like many writers before me, to challenge myself and become a great American writer. And then I starved for three years and answered <laughs> phones uh, at the doctor's office. Uh, but that was very fortunate. Uh, I just like I really caught my big break with, uh, with uh, Deadspin was my was it was the break that I was almost I was almost 30 years old and I I had, and I'd been just I'd never really caught a break before at all and then finally Deadspin kind of happened and since then I've been very fortunate, uh, which is to say I have not actually worked in an office. Like a day, like go into an office in the morning and greet everybody and talk about the talk about the local sports franchise and boy that weather get a little chilly this time of year. Uh, I've never I have not worked in an office since March two thousand five. Wow, the last time I have registered rep at that office. I had a desk at New York Magazine. Uh, for, for for a few years, but I think eventually, like the book critic, got tired of putting all the extra galleys. <laughs> they ran out of space on his desk, so they put it on mine. And once they realized, hey, what is that big stack of galleys? Oh, that's Leech's old desk. Let's get let's let's get it out of there. Uh, so I didn't. So I, you know, for me. Yeah, you know, I said my wife's a decorator. She works at a home as well. And we lived in Brooklyn. We lived in those big high ride. We, I used to live in Cobble Hill and lived there for eight years and loved it. And then uh, we had to move. We had a kid. It's, it's a basic thing, right? We had a kid. Uh, we had, my, my son, uh, my older son, um, William, named after his grandfather, not his dad, to be very clear. <laughs> uh, and then, and then, um, uh, and we, and he was a year and a half old. And it became very clear to us. Uh, like it becomes to a lot of people with small, uh, with young families, uh, how much can we continue doing this New York thing? And my fear was because I worked in media, was I able going? Was I going to be able to uh, continue the career that I had um, when uh, somewhere else other than New York? And so I was in New York Magazine full time, and then uh, I w- there was a site called Sports on Earth, which I, which was just ended a, about a year ago, and uh, they had uh, Joe Posnanski was actually the lead writer for that site, and then he left, and so. The they, uh, I'd been writing for the site already, and they asked me, would you like to kind of take his spot as like the lead writer on the site? And I said, yes, but you have to let me move. We had decided that we were ready to go. We wanted, we, we, were, we, were, we were ready to move. And so and then my, my favorite story of this is Adam Moss, who just left New York Magazine. I went in to tell Adam Moss that, uh, like, sir, I've loved my time here. Uh, I, we were ready to, my wife and I, are, and my son and I are ready to move and leave out of New York City. Thank you for everything. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah whatever. You're still going to write for us, though, like all the time, right? And I was like, oh, my gosh, yes, yes, Adam got <laughs> And I kissed his feet. And it was really wonderful. Um, but for me, you know, I have found to get more to the nitty and gritty of it, moving to Athens. And we moved to Athens. My wife is from the South, but we looked at New Orleans and Charleston and Athens. To me, if you ever get a chance to live in a college town, absolutely do so. Uh, it has all the great stuff of a big city and oh, none of the bad stuff of the, of the big city. And in the summer, the students are gone. So you just run the place. Uh, college towns are the absolute best. Um, but I would say one of my fears was is that I would get lost. I would get lost and people would forget that that uh, that I was ever around because I wasn't in New York anymore. I would say, and maybe this is partly the changing of the industry, 
there are still editors and people I work with that don't quite realize that I moved because <laughs> we live in the virtual world, right? They don't yep. know. I have the same email address. They don't even know one way or the other. And I would say it's improved my work because it's changed my perspective in a lot of ways. Like, you know, my, my closest friends uh, here in Athens, like in New York, everyone was a media person. Like uh, I would say every single person that was a friend of mine was in one way, shape or form connected somehow to the media. If just because I moved to New York, like a struggling young writer, like they didn't, we all grew up together. So, you know, everyone was connected in one way or the other. Here, nobody is. And so I talked to like, you know, real people. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and, and so for me, like my best friends here are a, uh, a lawyer, uh, a guy that runs a board game cafe and a preacher. Like, uh, I know that sounds like they all walk into a bar and then something amusing happens. But um, uh, to me, I, I like having that perspective. I still, I go back to New York to film my Sports Illustrated show. So I get to, I get, I get my juice. I get to like talk media stuff. I get, I get my, my addiction. But for me, you know, having that perspective, I think my work has gotten better. I think um, I, I understand, I feel like I've calmed down. My work has calmed down because I'm not, uh, at the end of the day, uh, nobody here actually cares about what I do. <laughs> like, uh, I think to most people here, I'm Alexa's husband who seems to be home all the time for some reason. <laughs> and uh, that's okay. That's totally fine with me uh, because it allows me to just concentrate on the work and not concentrate on the social aspect of it or what other journalists are thinking or how this is being received. I just don't sweat that stuff i just i can just concentrate on the work and and also i have a house and i have a office where i can shut the doors in and uh and and i have a yard and like normal human things and i think there's something to be said for being able to have a little peace in your life to make better work as well i, I completely agree i've i have worked uh, in the office uh here in our house in miami uh since 2012 since joining espn and yeah i got to go to bristol i go a couple times a month or every month and but yeah everything you said most of our friends down here are non-journalists, don't care what I do. I'm just this house husband who pads around in shorts <laughs> and a t-shirt. And yeah, and, and it, it does, it, it helps with your perspective. It, it you know, you're not, spe you're not, you're not obsessed with what media people are constantly obsessed with, right? You're not in that world. You're, you're apart from it and you can focus more on the work. You know, one of the things I've discovered, uh, particularly when I go back in, to visit New York and visit my old friends now, the ones that are still there, many have left. Um, you know, people, we moved to New York to try to like, because we were from, I'm from central Illinois, people are from Florida, people from wherever. People moved to New York to try to like test themselves and broaden their horizons and see the world in a way that wherever they were from, were unable, they were unable to do so. And then they stay there long enough and then you call them like, hey, do you want to go have dinner? They're like, great, can we go to the place downstairs from my apartment? And I'm going right back upstairs after I'm done eating. It shrinks your world people don't want to do anything i think new york something about new york shrinks your world to in a way that i think is limiting it is exhausting and not good not frankly not good for perspective or good for great work and i loved my time in new york i really had a i really truly greatly enjoyed my time and i i love going back now all the things that are horrible about new york when you live there are very charming when you come back like oh there's a man excreting <laughs> on the subway and and when you're when you're just visiting you're like oh you do new you do you new york look at you and when you yes. live there you're like i live in a hellhole what am i doing here what have i done with my life the day after tomorrow i'm on the flight <laughs> out of here you know it's uh it, it keeps you going yeah. 
when you're there for sure. I've had the exact same reaction. Well, it's like, okay, I'm only here for 60 more hours. It's all so charming and wonderful. <laughs> yeah. But when you're there, you're like <laughs> garbage piled up in yeah, the streets or whatever. Oh, look at this. Trying yeah. to explain to my parents when I'm almost 30 years old and uh, and I and they, you know, I was I was the, the the gifted kid and there was the one they had all of their hopes in and went to college and paid for college, all this stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm living in a in a apartment with three other people and the roof has like constant rainwater and fur for some reason coming from the sky and and everything and i've got this job answering phones in the doctor's office which is fine honest work no offense nothing wrong with it but probably not what they sent me to school for so there is a certain kind of idea and i see this now i mean i do i i don't i i much love for all my friends that live in new york and i love seeing them and i love going to new york the sushi in athens is terrible sushi so much better in new york uh but but i would say that like it's always surprising to me how um, New York really is a bubble. It mm-hmm. really is a bubble. Yeah. And the, in the way that the media is a bubble. And I, and I don't mean to say that like that bubble does not have good intentions. It doesn't even have its value of sense of community as well. But uh, I feel like I understand uh, myself and understand the world better, uh, not just trying to uh, appeal to other journalists I, I feel like new york is this like private slack channel where like everyone is constantly <laughs> just trying to one-up themselves with uh, uh and they're not realizing that not everybody is in the private slack channel uh, i want to go back to when you were in that doctor's office as you said it's not what uh your parents sent you to college to do uh and then you uh you know a lot of college students probably dream uh, of having a personal blog being magically turned into a nationally recognized website and brand like Deadspin became. And so you have this opportunity to create this website, deadspin.com. How did that happen? Uh, so, yeah, while I was in the doctor's office, uh, I, uh, I, which I took that job literally because I did not have email or a computer in my apartment. <laughs> I had like an old typewriter that would save to like a little disk. So, so this, was, take to this the, was just to the tethering webcam. yourself to the outside world, right? I just needed email, man. I needed reliable email <laughs> and Netscape. I was still using Netscape at the time. Uh, so, uh, but while I was doing that, um, uh, we started my friend Aileen Gallagher, who's now a journalism professor at Syracuse, uh, Eric Gillen, who is now the head of Epicurious and uh, AJ Delorio, who has his, certainly has had uh, yes. uh, he's he runs a site called The Small Bow now, and of course he's famously ran Deadspin after me and ran Gawker. The three of us were all kind of frustrated young journalists who were not doing any of the work that we wanted to do. So we started our own site called The Black Table, and the idea of it was at blacktable.com. And the idea was we would publish work. We'd all had freelance pieces that we loved, but they got killed. And they, remember kill fees? Remember those? Yes. <laughs> kill fees. Yep. That's something that I think that the 23-year-old journalist will not know today. Uh, but uh, um, kill fees. Like, we, like you're lucky to get a run fee uh, in a lot of places anymore. But uh, we like if a piece got killed or uh, kind of got cast off, we, the idea was we would run that piece online. It was very early in the days of the internet, 2002, 2003. So we, we, we wanted to run it the way the writer wanted it to be read. And then while we were doing that, we kind of developed our own individual voice and wrote our own stuff. And I think got a little bit of a following, which is not very big, but it happened to coincide with the rise of Gawker. And this was back when Gawker was kind of a New York media site before it became 
so much larger later. So he kind of rose with that. And so what happened is that the aforementioned Lockhart Steele and Nick Denton had seen my work at the Black Table, and they asked me uh, if I uh, they had uh, they had a they had a um, sponsorship with Bodog. Remember Bodog? There was a oh, yes. gambling thing yep. called Bodog. And they had a six-month sponsorship to do a gambling blog, like a pop-up gambling blog. And they asked me if I wanted to do it. And I said, uh, in, in all of my wisdom, uh, very careerist as always, said, actually, I think gambling is bad. <laughs> And bad for the world, and I want nothing to do with it, and it will actually corrupt your soul the more you gamble, and you should just enjoy things. Um, So no, I probably should not run uh, your gambling site. However, while I have you, um, I've always thought that you guys should do a sports site. Uh, The site I kind of patterned the idea around was Defamer, which is an old site run by Mark Lasanti, who went on to to, to work at Grantland, and, um, and a very, very talented guy. And I and just I thought it was an absolutely brilliant site. So I thought a sports site in that realm, uh, but you know, like fine, like it's sports, it's silly. Like you, I, I I didn't feel like it was it was something that uh, was. Um, you know, I, I had worked as a beat reporter in college. I was a stringer for the St. Louis Post Dispatch, the University of Illinois, and I would go up to the press box and I would see, uh, to me, you know, I was like, wow, this, I'm at a Illini game and I'm for free and there's food. This is, people are going to be so happy when I get up there, and they weren't. They were not happy when I got there. And so I thought, okay, no matter what happens, I am not going to be a sports reporter. So I thought, okay, when I had this idea of what the site could be, I wanted to make sure to write about sports the way that made me still like sports. So I kind of pitched this in my idea with this kind of infamous long memo about how this thing would work. And they saw it like, wow, for the first time we think, because they've been, I think they've been pitched a sports site before. And uh, they said, we, the first time we think it might work, nobody knows who you are. So we're going to try to find someone who people know who they are. And you can assist that person with this. <laughs> right, we'll get somebody <laughs> and, uh, who's more famous and, uh, and to execute me, I, your wonderful idea. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. And you can assist them. You can be the assistant. And, uh, and uh, listen, my response was not, how dare you? It's like, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Get me out of this job. I'm a horrible financial reporter. Please, whatever you want to do. And fortunately for me, everyone they approached turned it down. I think they I think they were hesitant. I, I think they maybe had better. They were, they, to be honest, I, I think they went for, uh, that was around the time of page two yes. uh, at ESPN. I think that they found a logical, they thought a page two person running this sort of site was a good idea. And I think basically all of those people turned them down because it's hard to leave ESPN, and particularly at that time. So, well, who um, turned them down? Give me a couple names. Oh, I, I, I would have. You'd have to let them. You have to let them. Uh, <laughs> okay, you have to let I them tell you that. that. I'm staying. I'm staying out of that one. All right. Um, just, uh, but um, okay. It was Stephen A. Smith. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no. Um, but um, uh, so anyway, so once once all of those people turned them down, uh, they came to me and like, all right, you're cheap. So so go ahead and do this site however you want to do it. I honestly thought it would last like six months. I figured it was it would last six months. I would get some good clips out of it that I could show to New York Magazine or could show to uh, to details even back from back in the day. Um, but just any, I thought it would maybe get me a gig or two or get me out of the financial reporting job. And uh, it caught on and it caught on faster than I thought it was going to. It launched in September 2005 and uh, and it became Deadspin. I it's funny I left Deadspin in uh, July. 2008, if you can believe that. It's been more than 11, almost 11 years since I left. And I will say uh, anytime, uh, I, you know, I work for Sports Illustrated, I do work for, for MLB, I do work for uh, for, uh, for for New York Magazine. Anytime Deadspin will write something about someone from one of those publications, everyone looks at me like I did it. <laughs> 
<laughs> it still happens. It still happens. It's kind of amazing. Um, so I'm like, I've literally not even met this reporter. I actually think that, but I, I will tell you though, and I, I, I feel, I mentioned this kind of a little bit in the Sunday long read. Um, one, uh, it's kind of my great fortune that, um, you know, when I left that spin, it was popular, but it wasn't what it was now. It didn't have the breadth and scope of what they're doing now. Uh, and if the person that would have run Deadspin after me would have run it into the ground and everything would have fallen apart, uh, no, I, I would not get any, like I, to this day, like founder of Deadspin is in my bio. I'm talking to you 11 years after I left the site and this is still a major topic of conversation. That's not because of something that I did. That's because of what they did. That is their work and I am well, that's, fortunate. That's extremely generous of you to say, but, but uh, Deadspin caught on in large part because of the work you did. And that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Will, why? What do you think it was in those three years you were in charge of the site that made it stand out? You know, I think the main thing, first of all, I think the idea was just good. I really don't think that people came to the site and said, wow, uh, something big's happened. Let's see what Will Leach's take on it is. Like, I don't. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that's what I think it was the next. I think it's two things. One, I think there was a nexus of things that were all kind of coming together at once that I was fortunate to be the beneficiary of. In that, um, uh, at the time, ESPN, I think at that point, had become so large. Not that it's not, not, that it's not large now, but I think that, you know, there had been... Um, it was the time where um, there was not a lot of... That, that kind of bringing the alt-weekly to the world of sports and doing it in blog form is just a logical idea at that time. And I was just fortunate enough to get there first and to be able to do it as a full-time job. I think other people were doing some sites, but they were just doing it on the side. They were only able to update a couple. I was able to like flood the zone and really kind of do it. And if I brought anything, so I think the timing was just right um, as opposed to like me being so brilliant. I think the thing that I hopefully brought to it was generally a sense of good cheer. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I remember that. And, I remember those early days. I was gonna. I was gonna say that. Absolutely, you did. And and that. No question. And I mean, that's. I mean, frankly, it's just my personality. Like I. I. That was why it was always so weird. Because I think because Desmond was so different than what people were saying. I think people thought that uh, that I. Uh, I think people that didn't read the site regularly uh, thought that it was like some we're coming to take you down. And I remember I, the the infamous Bob Costas. Uh, uh, Costas now appearance on HBO. Everyone kind of looked at me surprised that I was wearing like a suit jacket and had like a normal dorky Midwestern guy haircut. I think they expected me to show up in like a black leather jacket being like, screw you on your media. I'm coming to take you all down. I'm like, no, I'm just a normal dorky, snarky, obnoxious punk kid. But like, I'm not like, like I'm, I'm an affable guy. Like I'm, I generally, and it's my, I, I, I've been very lucky to, to uh, the world has not tore me down so far enough that I cannot continue to have a positive attitude. I don't under, I understand why some people don't have positive attitudes, but I'm generally a positive person. I wanted to, uh, sure, I wanted the site to have some sarcasm to it. And I, I, I do think the site was always, if there's one thing that I think carries over from my time that I think they still do really great. I think they do a lot of things fantastically that I would have never even dreamed of doing. But if there's one thing I think they are still that as in the in the, the DNA for when I was doing it to what they do now, you're supposed to call out bullshit and bullshitters. Like that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> like that, that that's part of the job description and they do that uh, so well today. I think about this, I talked about this, I was on Jeff Perlman's podcast last week. And uh, uh, Laura Wagner is a uh, is a reporter for for Deadspin and she is absolutely fearless. She is yes. absolutely fearless. Big fan of her what, work. 
and, She's and fantastic. She, I mean, she is fearless in a way that I am not and frankly never have been. And I have such admiration for her. She's gone after me. She's gone after Sports Illustrated. She's gone after New York Magazine. She's gone after all these places. And I don't always agree with her. But like that, that when people will come to me and say, wow, look at the, look at what the site is now. Uh, what do you think of it? And I'm like, first off, it's, um, they have a breadth and scope to everything. But two, like, if you, if you are looking back at looking like the people, the way people are reacting to Laura Wagner and not just her, but like all the good, a lot of the good reporters there, I think she just takes a lot of the heat because I think she is so fearless that if you're reacting negatively to her, I, you're, and then saying, oh, it's not like the early days of Deadspin. Like you're wrong. <laughs> like that, she is in the spirit spirit of Deadspin as much as anyone has ever been the spirit of Deadspin. I think, and I think the site is better now than it has ever been. It just blows me away what they're able to do. And it's just my good fortune that, uh, that I, I, I'm a beneficiary of it. I don't agree with everything they do because I am another human being entirely. It's weird. It would be weird if I agreed with every single thing that anyone else always said, but on the whole, I think they do incredible work and i and i'm and i'm lucky that uh, even even when they come after me there's not been the time where they've, they've criticized me in the last couple of years where i haven't thought you know what they might be a little not entirely i saw my own perspective but i feel like if you if i'm if you're called out by them uh generally speaking uh there's a reason what's the worst thing they said about you Oh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, I can for a while these days because you know now I don't really know the staff as well anymore. Like there was a time like I know Drew and I know Barry and I know I have so I know I know Megan the, the editor who for, for as a side note like the stuff that she is doing that she's done uh, since she got there is uh, uh, is I would argue pretty revolutionary not just with Deadspin but really kind of across the board. Uh, but and and again talk about fearless the fearlessness that they have there. Worst and, thing, and you're refer- you're referring to Megan Greenwell. Yes. Who's a former ESPN the magazine yes. uh, editor? So yes. she's a former colleague of mine. Yes, as well. and and yep. yeah, and she and I just think the work they're doing is great. But like, there was a time when they would go after me, and I I could I couldn't tell if they were kidding or not because they're just, if they're just playing with Will. Now nobody knows me, so I know it's legit. <laughs> like I know it's I know it's good now. Um, uh, but for me, you know, I mean, you know, to me, like, uh, um, you know, I worst think that, worst thing, Will. Got to answer the question. I'd say the most recent thing. Uh, <laughs> these damn reporters for their <laughs> persistence. Um, I I would say. Uh, you know, I wrote a piece uh, for New York Magazine. Uh, Tim Marchman wrote a piece uh, uh, kind of criticizing the royal we, which I think was something though that Deadspin was kind of famous for back in the day. And he mentioned a piece that I, I wrote a piece for New York Magazine about Barstool, which is always fun. Always fun when you write something about Barstool. And I wrote something about Barstool, and a couple times I slipped into the royal we, kind of describing, like, we, we should have known better about, when talking about, frankly, something I should have known better about. And and I he pointed out, I think rightly and justifiably, that there is a certain ass covering to that. Like, it's, it's I, 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 until I really want to make a confession, and then it's we. And I thought that was a very fair thing to say. And, Sounds uh, like so, a legit criticism, yeah. Yeah, I thought it yeah. was fair. I mean, I, it's not something I was consciously doing, right. but it's certainly something I consciously avoid now. So, uh, and the idea of, I'm glad about that. I'm glad that, uh, that a criticism, uh, and again, whatever, that's like, that's, that's one of, I, that my criticism is like, I think most people they criticize would totally take that. <laughs> like, oh, we are disagree with your writing style. We think you're being deflective as opposed to the things that they say about other people. Uh, but uh, I could take that. But I, but I, I would say that I like that, uh, I, I like that uh, uh, there would be nothing more hi- hypocritical than, uh, for me or anyone involved in Deadspin to say, like, like I, it's not supposed to be, Deadspin should not be about protecting people 
uh, or saying, uh, "I'm gonna." Uh, oh, he used to work here. Let's be nice to that guy. Uh, he he did that something stupid, but we're not gonna go after him for it. I feel like that's that's this. Desmond's always been about uh, kind of uh, radical transparency in that way, and I've and it, I think that's something that's kind of hung through. I know they've just been sold. We'll see how that works. Uh, I can't really talk about that because sports two of the, Sports Illustrated and your magazine, two of the places that I write for regularly, are also for sale. So that is the industry, the world, uh, the way that we're in right now. Uh, you know, a number of writers and websites for Grantland, The Ringer, and Deadspin have, you know, done similar things. Why do you write about non-related sports topics? Is it just a love or is it a necessity to cover more ground in order to make a living these days? Uh, I, I have to say I love sports, and but sports was never the goal. I really didn't want to be a sports reporter. I, I, I almost had to, like, fashion my own beat to even make it be something that I really wanted to do. Um, so to me, it's just... It's like kind of what we talked about earlier. I want to write about things that I care about, and I really care about these things. I do a movie podcast, Grierson Leach, with my childhood best friend, uh, Tim Grierson, who is actually vice president of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association. So he's a legitimate critic. I'm the guy that's like, I don't know. I like the armpit noises in my movies. Adam Sandler's great. Like he is, he's a legitimate film critic, and I'm just pretending to be a film critic. Um, but like, I love movies, and I and that's something that I that I that brings me joy to be able to do. And I like to, you know, my. I'm very Roger Ebert about this. I go back to Ebert again, but like Ebert, what's the old improv idea? Always say yes in the scene. Like always, like the trick is to always say yes. I don't turn down, like I don't remember the last time I turned down a gig. I mean, for crying out loud, I mean, you know, one of the things that we have <laughs> is I had uh, Sean Astin uh, from Rudy, Rudy and uh, and Samwise Gamgee. He was on the Will Leach show, uh, the Sports Illustrated show last week. And one of the things we talked about that was absolutely fascinating. Like, it's Sean Astin. Like, this is it's I mean, you, people see Sean Astin on screen and like just like they get a better mood. Like, so like Stranger Things was all about like having the goodwill of having Sean Astin uh, show up on screen. Like, this is a guy that has a clear place kind of carved out for him in like American politics popular culture and he's like yeah it's all just work man <laughs> like it's all work you just gotta take gigs i'm a working actor in my job like people people think because i'm on tv all the time uh that and i've been in these movies that i'm like a multi-millionaire <laughs> and, and i'm not like i just i work i got a family i got kids to send to school i did ask him by the way if his daughter uh got into harvard by pretending to be a rower she did not she got in legitimately uh you have to ask all celebrities that question when they have kids in uh in ivy league schools now um but uh uh I, I found I found that's generally kind of my attitude on these things is I say yes to everything because again as we touched on I for a long time nobody wanted me to write for them and nobody would read anything of the things that I wrote every like people always ask like what do you want to do like is there an ultimate goal and I just I just finished a novel like there's certain itches I want to scratch uh, a, a little bit uh, but oh what's your not what's your novel about it's uh, I it's early enough in the process that I don't want to get into too much details about it, okay. other, other than to say uh, um, uh, other than to say that my uh, I what I did was I wrote about this in my newsletter um, I it's it has nothing to do with sports has nothing to do with sports whatsoever and uh, it's just an idea I'd had for a long time and I and I'd never done this before but uh, I've written four books and all of them were either pitched and accepted and therefore we had a contract and then I wrote it or they were based off an existing material and just kind of adapted this one I just kind of wanted to write on my own I didn't want to like try to talk I didn't want anyone to talk me out of writing it so I just sat down and wrote it and then called my agent who I had not talked to in like a year and said hey I have a book for you can I give it to you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and so I was like, I, I, and uh, so fortunately, I, I, it's my good fortune. He did not read it and say, oh, yeah, next time call me. 
<laughs> this is, this is, like, call, call me before you embark time, on this yes. on this kind of a disaster. Yes, he does. Right? He does. He does think it's publishable. So, uh, which is good. But um, uh, for me, for me, yeah, that's like that's something I want to do. Like that's something I want to. That's an itch I wanted to scratch. But people ask like what I want to do, what the ultimate goal is. If I'll be honest, man, if I can do this in thirty years, where I just get to write all the time, this is what I wanted to do. Like this was all I ever wanted to do. I did not. I'm always amazed, and I, I'm always impressed. I look at people like Bill Simmons would be a good example of this. Like Bill Simmons, I was inspired by Bill Simmons in the early days. I don't think that's been exists without Bill Simmons. I I always remember uh, reading. Going out for smoke breaks at lunch at the doctor's office, which, by the way, you shouldn't do when you're working at the doctor's <laughs> office to smoke outside the hospital. But whatever, I was in my twenties, I was I was reckless. But I would like print out the copies of it, print out copies of his columns, and read them, and think, "Well, I can't believe this guy's getting away with it." And that couldn't help but be the germ for something like Deadspin. Uh, but for me, like, and I and I have like a lot of respect for him and what he does. But like, he doesn't write anymore, <laughs> and he's gone into being like an entrepreneur and to be like an editor, and that's great. And I have such respect for that, and that is awesome. But like I don't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like I, I think because Deadspin got big for a while, people thought I was like I wanted to be like an innovator or like a disruptor or something. And like I wanted right. That was literally all I ever wanted to do in the first place. I thought that's actually what everybody wanted to do. It turns right, you out don't want, you that, don't want a podcast network. You don't want to be an entrepreneur. No. You don't right. You don't want to be the creator of some website. You don't want to do that. I want to make stuff. That's literally all I wanted to, ever wanted to do yeah. is to is to make stuff, make stuff, and then uh, finish with it, and then go make something else. And uh, you know, Roger, again, back to Ebert. Ebert has probably my favorite quote about writing of all time, which is that the muse visits during the act of creation, not before. Which is to say, just make stuff. <laughs> just sit down and start making stuff. Figure out what you want to write about. Research it. Get where you're going, and then just start doing it. So, like the, the I will never forget waiting for for my first ever piece in the Daily Illini all night outside of Florida Avenue residence halls in Champaign, Illinois, and seeing my byline. Roger Ebert always talked about how he was addicted to his byline. He thought the three most beautiful words in the English language were by Roger Ebert. <laughs> and and I get it. I get it. I understand. I understand that addiction. And so for me, that is, uh, uh, if I can do this right now, what I'm doing for the next uh, until until I collapse at my desk, I'll be pretty happy. Completely agree. Well, you see where you want to be in 30 years. I want to ask you, where do you think the industry is going to be in 30 years? Particularly, you know, digital sports coverage, pop culture, the sort of sandboxes that you play in. Uh, if you have to look in your crystal ball 30 to 40 years down the road, Will, what do you, where do you see we're headed? Um, well, I, I would I would not deign to make any concrete predictions uh, because I would, they're probably wrong and then I could be called back and used against me later on. Uh, but I would say that um, when it comes to the business itself, uh, I understand that it is a scary time and things can feel perilous and things can feel uncertain. Um, as you can attest, uh, certainly I know, uh, everybody told me how much a mistake I was going into journalism in 1993 when I graduated from, from high school and how I was never going to have any jobs. I would say that from my perspective, the problems in the industry are all business related rather than uh, production related, which is to say there is yet to be a newspaper or a publication that has gone down because the stories weren't good enough or no one was working hard enough. That's not why these things are like it was it was very it's very strange. Like it's, it's not like it's all people in a room that you don't even that you, the, your publication or your website or your job status is controlled by someone that you probably do not know 
and will never meet and doesn't even really know what you do because everything is run by big corporations now. And so uh, on one hand, that can make you feel helpless. I would argue it ultimately makes you feel freeing, free because you don't. there's nothing you can do about that. And which is to say, which leads me to my next point, which is the in the business model may still be getting figured out, but I will worry about sports journalism or political journalism when people stop caring about sports or politics or entertainment. Like people still obviously care about this stuff. This is not like it. Like sure, the news business is in a period of flux, but the as we talked about in the beginning of the Sunday long read, the sports the content production business and the consumption business is a booming. It is going great. And I think, and it's not just that people are making a lot of stuff. People are reading a lot of stuff and consuming a lot of stuff. And I know that can make it hard on an individual basis to feel like, can I break through? Can people read my stuff? But the appetite for stuff, the desire for information and perspective and yeah, entertainment is unquenched and un, perhaps unquenchable. So I will worry about like if there if things turn into Mad Max <laughs> and everything's falling <laughs> apart, then and the, I I will wonder yes how much will they care about my witty bon mots about the Miami Marlins bench? Yes, I will worry uh, <laughs> at that time because they probably won't care then. But until then, as long as people still care and they clearly do, um, the business side of it, I just don't sweat it that much. I mean, like I, I, I mean, I sweat it, I worry, I have a family to raise, I, you have the natural day-to-day worries, but the actual where the industry's going or how are we going to hang on or, uh, or inevitably, anytime you talk to any sports journalist the, the sec- and you talk about the state of the industry, the first or second thing they always bring up is the athletic, <laughs> and everybody's always so nervous. That, like, the athletic's yep. going to be fine, right? The athletic's going to be fine, right? That's the thing that everybody always worries about. And, um, and I understand that if uh, I think the athletic is great and I have many friends that work there and I wish them all the best luck in the world. I hope it all works out. But if it ever turns out that it doesn't, it doesn't mean that sports journalism is broken. <laughs> like it doesn't. And I, and I, and as someone that watched Grantland go down that had my own site, sports on earth end for reasons that had absolutely nothing to do with how hard everyone was working or the work they were producing, or even whether the, the market was up for a site like that had nothing to do with those things. It was all business decisions made by people that we didn't even know. So uh, right. I, yeah, well I, yeah. I, I feel like there's nothing I, – I, I feel like when, when people worry about the industry, they take it personally. And they shouldn't because it doesn't have anything to do with them. <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with, do with their work at all. And if, and if it makes you feel any better, the rest of America has this exact same problem with their jobs too. <laughs> so I guess there's nothing yes. different about, about journalism in that regard. Absolutely. I have to ask you about uh, your pivot to video. So you've got two seasons under your belt, 36 episodes with uh, your Amazon SITV late night talk show. Uh, In today's media age, it seems like a 20 to 30 plus minute one on one interview show with no commercials should not survive this long. Uh, Bill Simmons couldn't make it work. And he had two guests on his show. What makes your show work? Well, the reason my show has lasted longer than the Bill Simmons show is my show is not on HBO. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, 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 I have a little bit more uh, room for error than uh, the Bill Simmons show did. And also, you know, I mean, listen, I think a lot of people are watching. I think there are more people watching the SI platform than I think necessarily people think sometimes. But it's also, again, not HBO. <laughs> like it is. It, I've been able to kind of uh, tweak the show and kind of make it more the way that I'd like to make it. Uh, 
in in uh, on my own pace and my own time. Like there's not been like like I'll put it this way: I've not had to deal with a bunch of angry critics telling me what's wrong with the show. Like it's not, we haven't had we haven't had like a variety review being like, well, like as far like so you know for me. Um, I think uh, whether it works or not, I don't know. I, I think it's a fun thing to do. Uh, I think that uh, I liked the idea of merging two things, a late night kind of uh, a kind of kitschy late night talk show vibe. Like mm-hmm. the reason it's called the Will Leach show is because it's absolutely absurd that anything would be called the Will Leach show. Like that's the <laughs> idea. Like it's not like it's like like every it's not like, like there's no reason like there's a no logical reason to be like, well, you know, I've always thought that Will Leach should have a show. Like I don't think that's anyone anything anyone ever thought myself included. <laughs> like the, the fun, the fun of doing it is is to take like kind of the conventions of the of the late night show and like move them over uh still have that a little bit but also combine that with a podcast vibe right is and then and to kind of have that idea and to talk about i have this i have a thing with every guest i do called frivolous questions of dubious import and they're all uh specific things just for them and they're all they're 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 never about what they're what they're promoting they're never about um they're never about the obvious things they would have. Uh, like for me, I was to me the fascinating thing when I was talking to Sean Aston was the idea that uh, I could. Have, everyone asked about Rudy, and I asked him a little about Rudy and Lord of the Rings. But I was fascinated as a child actor. His first movie when he was eight years old was a movie. It was a TV movie called uh, "Please Don't Hit Me, Mom." It was, it was, a, it was an after school special about after school uh, special of about course, a, yes. about 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 a eight year old boy being beaten by his mother. And his mother was played by Patty Duke, who is Sean Astin's mother. So I was trying to like get at how insane, how 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 confusing that must have been for like an eight, for like an eight year old kid, and what that would do for your life. And it turned into like this much very fascinating conversation of he's like, yeah, he he it turned out his mother actually had what actually had abuse problems. It was something they actually worked out together, and like to be able to have that kind of conversation to where. Like, yeah, he was there promoting a Netflix show and we got the plug in. But then to have that time to sit down and actually talk to him in uh, in a environment that is part podcast, but also kind of performative in like a talk show kind of way, I think it's an interesting mix. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. But when it works, it's really, really fun. And, you know, I have a... Um, I've always been a writer first, uh, but um, I really love, and you know, you're like a natural interviewer. I had to learn to be, to really become like a good interviewer. And I, it's funny, I had Andrea Kramer on, who's like one of the best interviewers ever. Like just truly one of the truly great television interviewers ever. And it was great. She's so good. I asked her, I was like, hey, so what am I like, like now that I have you, am I doing anything wrong? Like I'm a writer, I'm doing the show. Am I, am I doing anything wrong? And she kind of looked at me and I realized, oh, She's actually going to answer this question, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and she did. You know, and she was nice about it, but she pointed out something that I was I was doing really wrong, which is and, I, and what and what was that? I would ask a question. I would ask a question, and rather than ask the question and then stop, I would ask the question and then to make sure I transitioned well into her answer, I would give her options. It was basically what I was doing. I'd be like, so what was it like to be able to be inducted into the the writer's wing of the Hall of Fame? 
were you happy about it? Were you nervous? Were you and and which is the, which I I had not realized you were, I was you were asking multiple choice questions. Yeah, I was giving her you options. Can't do that. Yeah, rather than just letting her be like, I don't know. Why? How about instead of you guess how I was feeling, I just tell you how I was feeling. And uh, and to me, that that's a fun part about the show too. Is to, to to get totally schooled by one of the truly great television interviewers was one of my highlights as a television interviewer. That's awesome. Who is your dream guest the guest that you want the most for that show um i would say if i had a dream guest i mean i I would love to sit down i mean obviously like on one level it's like barack obama would be a fascinating sort of guest but like i in in the world of uh i would also love to have several unicorns on and that's not happening either (laughs) um i would i would say that uh if I could sit down, uh, one of my favorite people to write about and one of my favorite people to cheer for uh, is the baseball player Rick Ankiel, uh, who Tim Brown, uh-huh. the Yahoo sports writer, wrote a very great uh, – I, I reviewed the book for The Atlantic. And then I, would, I think I safely say it's one of the five uh, best uh, athlete autobiographies of all time, which is a motley selection, I grant you. But it is, uh, it is a truly fascinating book, and he's a fascinating person. Uh, I think uh, Pat Jordan wrote a great piece about him for The New York Times magazine years and years ago and um uh just just kind of what he dealt with with not just obviously his his throwing problems but with his father his father uh had a substance abuse problem was in in and out of jail and was actually a very difficult like athlete father now i I remember the jordan piece yeah and now he's trying to come back and now he's trying to come back again and to me you know as someone that i am a cardinals fan so i obviously care but the idea of um of and Keel's unlike a lot of athletes and that he's able to, if you read that book, he's able, I think a lot of this is Tim Brown, uh, is able to articulate fear and uncertainty. Athletes, that's not something that athletes really ever deal with at all. So uh, I think he would be a really, uh, really fascinating person to talk to. Maybe when the paperback comes out. Paperback might already be out. But uh, to have, uh, I think he'd be a fun person to have on. But uh, I, I, uh, I, I think that, the, one of the fun parts of doing the show. I also would love to just talk John talk to John Hamm about eighties Cardinal stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Any John Hamm conversation about Cardinal stuff would be happy to. But uh, how about Buzz Bissinger? Would you want him to be a guest? I don't know if I understand enough about makeup and 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 fashion and, <laughs> and self care to be able to do those things. To to have Buzz, it's, I do like the fact that Buzz and I are colleagues at New York Magazine now. Yeah, yeah. Buzz I was going to ask you about that. That was yeah. my. That, you see, you, you you stole my segue. Well, that's what could be my next question. You can tell. What's that all, like? You can tell all the assigning editors at New York Magazine are young because nobody put it together. <laughs> nobody put it. No one said, "Hey, wow, you guys are colleagues again." Like nobody mentioned it at all. So I could tell. Do you guys bump uh, into uh, each other in the hall, or how, uh, how yeah. does that work? <laughs> I think he's probably about in the office about as often as I am uh, from Athens. Um, uh, it's funny. I, we joke about that, but I will always say that you know when it comes to to buy, uh, I've never actually watched that segment uh, of the show. But people tell me about it still to this day, though less uh, uh, more recently. It's certainly obviously a relic of the time. But I would say that um, that I well, I never really liked that episode not because i don't i don't know whether i come across poorly or whether i don't come across poorly but it was always very frustrating for me because i think as it's become even more clear now uh it turned what could have been an interesting conversation about the changing nature of media and how the internet was going to have an effect on how reporters worked and it turned it into i am old guy and this is young guy and we are mad and and it turned it into something that frankly it turned it into uh, this type of discussion that by now we're all quite used to (laughs) which is people not actually discussing the issue at all 
and just kind of yelling past each other. And for me, as someone that has always been a fan of Buzz's and continues to be a fan of Buzz, even if like the stuff he's writing for New York Magazine is is hieroglyphics, as far as I'm concerned, I have no idea what any of that stuff means. Um, I'm sure he's good. I just don't understand it at all. Um, it is as, it is as if like all the letters were rearranged and like replaced with like weird like symbols from like the Tesseract in the Avengers movie, like uh, or like zodiac symbols. So I don't really understand. But I've always been admirer of his work, and I always thought he was not well served. To be honest, I'm not sure he was well served by Costas. To be fair, I think Costas kind of knew uh, um, Buzz and knew how passionate he was about this and knew that Buzz would be unfiltered in a way that would not necessarily flatter Buzz. Uh, and I think it's a shame because he... And, 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 and Costas assumed it was going to make for great TV, of course, because yeah. conflict is great TV. Yeah. Right? It's, it's going to be an episode of Crossfire, not the Costas show, basically. Yeah, yeah and I, but I I think, but also, like, he knew Buzz. Like, they worked on a biography together, like, years right. and years ago. Like, he right. knew Buzz. So he had, I didn't know Buzz was like that, but surely Bob did. And so I think I think it was, I would argue that it was a difficult position to put Buzz in. And it's a shame because now, like, Buzz is a beautiful writer and and he'll write this great cover story on Serena Williams and people will still just snicker about that or Buzz being unbalanced or spittle and all of these things. And I think that's I think it's a shame because I think it, it gets in the way of a, of a pretty great career work. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I think you're right. I think it, it is something that he's remembered for, uh, probably unfairly. Uh, he's also remembered for, you know, scorching people on Twitter. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it just just torching people. And uh, he had a period that he was doing that for a long time. You know, people with, you know, an egg uh, as an avatar and four <laughs> followers and Bissinger would spend all morning just crucifying, you know, so, somebody. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that didn't serve him well either. But but when you look back on that, though, Will, I'm just curious. I mean, do you see it? Because that's the first time I saw you. I mean, mm -hmm. I saw that episode and I knew vaguely about you and knew about Deadspin, but I just was sort of stunned and I'm closer in age probably to Buzz than I am to you, or maybe I'm in the middle. I, I don't know. You're 43. I'm 54. So if Buzz is 65, maybe I'm sort of in the middle, but still I, I'm an old print guy. Um, and yet I was offended as I was hearing it of things that Bissinger was saying. But as you look back on it, I mean, you know, how, how do you remember? Did do you think it it net net helped you hurt you I mean, uh, what do you think it did for you i guess is what i'm really curious about i don't know back when buzz and i used to, buzz and i used to talk about this because you know we were on the next episode of costas now in the which they had about like baseball history and we were right, both sitting right. in the stands uh, me in a cardinal's hat and him in a phillies hat sharing a beer and i thought it was like kind of funny but then like when the show was over buzz was like Whoop, he was gone <laughs> he was gone i think he was playing <laughs> along uh i i but uh we we we've talked a couple times since then and i my joke has always been that like right now it's probably the uh, third or fourth paragraph of his obituary and the second of mine. And the goal of it is for each of us is to push this down as far, <laughs> as far as we can. Um, but I would say that um, the thing that was frustrating for me and continues to be frustrating me about it is there's an interesting story there uh, that could have been hashed out on that stage. Um, yeah. And uh, that is to say the history of Braylon Edwards' uh, wide receiving career is what, no, <laughs> poor Braylon Edwards is on the stage <laughs> and just be like, why exactly am I here? Get me the hell off of the stage. Um, 
But uh, for me, the thing that was always that, that could have been interesting about it was like that. Remember the old Play magazine, the great New York Times sports magazine? Oh, uh, yeah. Play magazine. Love that magazine. And, and yeah. I think probably will go down in history now as having the David Foster Wallace, Roger Federer piece, but like yep. had a lot, a lot of great stuff. And I wrote for that. And, and the, but that issue, that week that, that we did that show, there was an issue on stands where on page 11, there was a story by me. And on page 17, there was a story by Buzz. Now we obviously took different routes to get there, but that, like, to me, that was an, that would have been an interesting story. The idea of like, okay, here is someone who has this, who has done his career this way and gotten him to this point, and here's someone that had their career go this way and got them to this point, and now they are in the same place. What does that mean for the for the industry and media and sports journalism? That would have been an interesting conversation as opposed to what happened. Uh, so it's always, I would have loved that, but yeah. but wait, but but to be really clear though, that's on Costas. Right, that, I, I, that, Costas would have had to frame it that yeah. way and come at it in, in a completely different way than the way he came at it. I agree, and uh, I've written about this. I, I wrote about an essay for this for the uh, paperback version of uh, God Save the Fan, my third book, and whatever. Like it's Bob Costas. Like Bob Costas is great. Like, everybody yeah, loves Bob course. Costas. But yeah. I, I always felt that uh, that situation, Buzz was the one that took uh, all the heat from that uh, interaction. And I, I, I just think Buzz was put in a situation uh, where uh, as long as I didn't like throw down my, th- throw a chair at him, uh, there was, there was, it was not going to work out well. For, I remember every, I, being on stage and thinking, okay, unlike Buzz, I know this is going to be all over the internet in like five minutes. So um, I'm going to prepare my uh, to comport myself accordingly, <laughs> and uh, and like I, I mean I worked for Deadspin. I knew the headline was going to be uh, Buzz Bissinger goes crazy, and my job was to not have it be Buzz Bissinger and Will Leach go crazy at each other. <laughs> and um, and for me that was I, I just I I feel like Buzz was ill served uh, by Bob. Uh, in that situation, I do. I've always thought that, and I, that doesn't mean that's it's it, 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 on the on the list of uh, of things in Bob Costas' career that matter. That's pretty low on the list, but uh, but I will say I've always thought that uh, it, it ultimately for me. I don't. I think that uh, it's gotten me. Uh, I would say it's gotten me more notoriety. Uh, it's gotten me more well known in journalism classrooms, <laughs> in, in collegiate journalism classrooms. I don't know if it's actually affected my actual career or anything, but every once in a while, uh, I'll put it this way. I had, uh, I had, um, uh, you, you know, the reporter, uh, uh, Soap and Deb for, uh, for the New York Times, really oh, good yeah. reporter. Yep. Awesome guy, totally great guy, really good at what he does. And I had drinks with him, uh, in New York a while back and we were talking, you know, he's younger, he's younger than me. And, uh, and, and he said, well, I mean, I remember when I saw you on that Bud Visitor thing and I, I read God Save the Fan and I mean, I loved that book when I was in college and I was a kid and I was like, right, right, right. People that like watch that and like were in college and high school when that happened are now actually really good reporters out in the world doing things. I've gotten old. That's something that's happened. So, uh, <laughs> and it's funny, I'm assuming if you went back to actually watch that segment now, I mean, considering the way that the internet works now, it'd have to seem incomprehensible. Like the things that were that, that they were actually yelling about ultimately, like the I mean, Buzz was like yelling at me for things that commenters said. Like it was just the whole thing was was yes. very he confusing. was quoting commenters as if they were words out of your mouth. Yes, yes. He was so. attributing he was attributing com- commenters' words to you, which is ridiculous. I think that Buzz was expecting too like a standing ovation from old print guys yeah. and women <laughs> like me. 
yeah. right? Like the, the sort of dinosaurs like him, he was expecting everybody was going to rally around him, not knowing, as you said, I think quite, quite correctly, that, you know, within minutes, this was going to go viral. He didn't even know what viral was. He, I mean, he found out pretty quickly, but you knew it sitting there and he had absolutely no idea and just expected, you know, the sort of old fraternity of old print men and women were going to rally around him and cheer him and, you know, carry him, you know, down Broadway. That's and, what he expected. Yeah. And to be honest, you know, I, I think that there's something instructive in that uh, for, say, me as I get older and I get more established and there are new people coming up and doing things that are not necessarily the way that I would do them does not mean that I am right and they are wrong. And, uh, and I feel like that was, uh, to me, I mean, listen, I think you're, I mean, you're a little younger than, than, uh, than Buzz, but like, I think you are a pretty great example of what happens when someone has that more quote unquote traditional background and then sees new things and says, oh, I can use this. This is a thing that this is a thing that I can that I can I can the readers can benefit from, and I can actually see how this is pointing in a new direction. For me, the issue right. was not the issue was not the internet is bad. It was this new thing is bad, and I do not like it. Yeah, and and it was the the other thing too about what Bissinger did. Obviously, is you know he was criticizing something that he didn't recognize, as you pointed out, but really something he just didn't understand it wasn't you know it, it didn't take the time to understand it uh and clearly felt threatened by it yeah right there's no I doubt think so and it would, of course it led to its own irony is once he once he did finally log on he absolutely would not log off he that's would, right he would not log off so uh I mean, he wouldn't it, shut up so, you know? and, and and in a very self-destructive way uh, i think you know? with this you know i he was i actually wrote a piece uh, back in the day about the a few about 10 years ago about this about how weird it was to see writers that I just loved and admired and felt like every piece I read of theirs was just meticulously worded and every word so carefully thought out and everything was absolutely perfect. And then you see them on Twitter and they're like, oh, in real life, they're a deranged lunatic. Thank God for editors. Give up for editors today one more time. Because it really is kind of an amazing thing. to, And that, that's not true of everyone, but certainly the number of writers that most, I... It's true of most people. I completely agree with you on this, Will. Yeah. Completely. It's yeah. Really, it's it, 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 it takes away, the, it takes almost the mystery away. I agree. And, and, I agree. And, and writers left to their own devices without editors, without that buffer, without that safety buffer, uh, they don't always like look too good. Right. No, I mean, their yeah. words don't look good. They show themselves. <laughs> they show their egos. They yeah. show their uh, they show their asses, basically. I mean, I have my friend Scott Price says this all the time. He says, you know, you go on Twitter and you see a writer that you really admire and then you just look at their feed for two or three weeks. You stop it. Admi- you can stop admiring them pretty quickly. Absolutely. And, and I think and I think there's something. To that, and whatever some people do it great. I, I talked about Roger Ebert. He was someone that was great on Twitter when when yeah. when when he was alive. But like I do think that uh, you not only do you lose a little, but like my editor, my editor in New York, like I'm very lucky. My editor in New York Magazine is David Wallace Wells, who <laughs> happens to be have like a book, like uh, this huge best selling book that may be changing the world right now. So I feel like if I've got something past him, I've done something right. Like I've been very lucky when like oh the editor of your columns is like has wrote this incredible book again. It's this changing the world. So uh, that's to me that's that's a I have such implicit explicit trust really in my editors kind of across the board so because of that you know i'm uh i i 
I realize what things look like before I give it to them and then what they look like afterwards and realize, oh, that's what my tweets would look like. So I just don't I just don't <laughs> tweet very often. Well, I, I, we're going to end on that thought. And Will, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Uh, I can't thank you enough for agreeing to edit the Sunday Long Read last week. You did a phenomenal job. I've been a fan of yours forever. And the fact you so quickly agreed to be a contributing editor of the newsletter uh, and then uh, just, uh, you know, very, as soon as I asked you to do this, you said, absolutely uh, really means the world to me and uh, so keep up the great work and thank you for everything uh, really. awesome and as, as i told you afterwards if you ever need i had so much fun doing it if you need a fill-in give me a week in advance just so i know i'm not on the road <laughs> but like i i would love to do it again it was it was really an absolute honor i do want to give a shout out by the way to my friend vicky michaelis who is the head yes. of the grady sports uh, the grady sports journalism department here at the university of georgia she assisted me as well found me some good she found me that great story about the about, about uh, the louisville newspaper about about the people who were stealing old wood off their off old barns to put on their new homes incredible story i think that was yeah, my was favorite story it has this great quote of someone that lived in the old barns being like i'm gonna shoot one of them when i i'm gonna empty this gun into them this is kind of incredible like that like that's something i would have not like to me that's like those little gems we all expect to see great stuff in the atlantic or we all expect to see that in the new york times or new york magazine but to see like the and that's the it's the local newspaper but like that's the point right is that there's these great little stories that we just get that are in uh, daily newspapers all the time that uh, it just kind of blows me away so honestly thank you for having me i had a blast thank you will i look forward to buying you uh, dinner drinks soon either in athens miami or or new york uh, soon I, we'll I, do it well you know what you know what let's just be safe and do all three that's that sounds great i look forward <laughs> to it thank you again will really appreciate it of course thank you my guest has been will leach will is contributing editor of new york magazine a national correspondent for mlb.com host of The Will Leach Show on Sports Illustrated TV, and the founding editor of Deadspin. Last week, as we discussed, he did a phenomenal job guest editing our newsletter. He did such a good job that we are going to, going to at some point, ask Will to come back and do it again. You've been listening to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. If you like what you just heard, please give us a review on our Apple Podcast page and subscribe to the pod so you won't miss another episode. This podcast is a byproduct of the Sunday Long Read newsletter. Every Sunday morning, the Sunday Long Read drops in your inbox at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. It's a list of the very best long-form journalism published the previous week. We're curated now by a dedicated team of 100 editors, staffers, and contributing editors. Pretty amazing. Everybody on the team does a fantastic job. If you haven't yet subscribed to our newsletter, you can do so at sundaylongread.com. And our membership program gives you extra early delivery of the newsletter on Sunday morning and special members-only newsletters that arrive on days other than Sunday. Details about our membership program can be found at sundaylongread.com backslash membership. Our producer today was the always excellent Jonathan Yales. Thank you, John, for all your hard work. I'm Don Van Natta. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon with another edition of the Sunday Long Read Podcast. See you soon. Mm-hmm.